You're listening to World Building for Masochists. And we're wondering why we do this to ourselves. Well, it's really hot and really humid, and I was told that World Building has air conditioning. I'm Rowena Miller. I'm Cass Morris. I'm Marshall Ryan Moresca. And this is episode 108, Living on a Prayer, Religion, Worldview, and the Individual. A friend of mine on Facebook posted that she stopped at the, the, there's apparently the Bon Jovi rest stop, and like she posted that she stopped there, and I replied, I didn't think you could actually get to it. You're halfway always just there. halfway there. <laughs> but, um... Peak dad joke. That's, that was a pretty good one. That See, I like that as a dad joke, though, because it's, it's an unexpected dad joke, you know, it's not... <laughs> it's not the it's obvious. Not, it's not a cliched, it's not a cliched dad joke, it's... yeah. A more nuanced dad joke. And you'd think that they would lean into it by having, but, like, you know, miles to <laughs> next rest stop halfway. <laughs> well, welcome back, listeners, for episode 108. And before we dive in fully, we have a couple of announcements. So the big news we have is we have once again been nominated for a Hugo Award for Best Fan Cast. So that Yay! this that makes a hat trick for us, I think, or whatever whatever the term is if you get nominated three times in a row. But we've been nominated three times in a row. That's exciting. And we're ever so grateful to all of you listeners and fans for your support. And we're grateful to everyone who nominated us this time around. Thank, thank you to our listeners. I think in bowling, three times in a row is a turkey. So we have a turkey. Hmm. <laughs> I don't know. I like that. I, I did That's not good. know that bowling term. You yeah. Know, so three I did not know there were there were a turkey. Three strikes in a row is a turkey. Interesting. Interesting. So this is I like this that. is our I don't know why. This is our turkey if you go nominations. <laughs> and we are ever so grateful to our listeners for your support and we thank you. Yes, it's it's super, super cool that y'all think highly enough of us to to do that. Um, especially with the nomination process sometimes being a, a complicated thing to figure out. And and so we appreciate that you jump through that hoop for us. You broke the chaos for us. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and also big thanks to all of our guests from, from the year of 2022, which is the year in consideration for this award. We had some amazing, amazing, amazing people join us. Um, and this podcast is what it is because of the folks who are willing to come talk to us and share their brains and we love that. It's the best part of doing the podcast is getting to talk to them. So thanks to all of them as well. In addition, currently live on Kickstarter, we have our um, anthology. Um, at the time of this recording, we are already like a third of the way funded. But of course, we are speaking to you from the past. So um, please do go check that out. Um, if you have not supported us, uh, we would much appreciate your support. You can pledge at any level you are comfortable with from just getting some thanks and the acknowledgments all the way up to getting a print book and a swag pack and fun stuff like that. So go check it out. We are very excited to put out an anthology featuring the magical nude gate and most importantly featuring some of our friends of the podcast who were kind enough to um, lend their talents to writing a story for us. And we really need your help, especially with funding this because we want to pay better than pro rates because we really believe in paying artists. 
And, co- and cover yes, artists we do. and copy editors and people who have yes. skills that deserve to be paid. And not not AI monstrosities. The other reason to to fund this and to help us make our goal is that we will be taking at least one story from submission. So if you have always wanted to join the world of the magical new gate, this could be your opportunity. Um, if we meet a stretch goal, it may be multiple stories. So the the more we get, the more we can pay people. Um, we'll be paying that submission person the same rate that everybody else is getting. Um, we're very excited to do that. Looking forward to to seeing the slush pile and what comes what comes in, what sorts of things come in. I know that some folks on our Discord have already been chatting about about their ideas and their excitement for it. Um, I think when this episode comes out, there will be about three weeks ish, maybe three weeks and change remaining of the Kickstarter. Um, so you've still got some time. And if you have supported us already, thank you so much. You're amazing. Now go tell everyone you know and make them do it too. We need to get there. We, we will not do it if we are not fully funded. And just as an FYI, as folks have already asked, um, submission details and process and all of that will be coming out once we do have the project fully funded. So keep an eye on that announcement from future episodes and social media and et cetera. One of our social media still exists. <laughs> yeah, at the time of recording this, friends, we're like right on on the cusp of when Twitter appears to be finally circling its drain, um, being driven there by a hose of nonsense <laughs> from the absolute genius running it. So we are we are exploring our other social media options and ways of reaching you all. We are, as of today, all three of us on Blue Sky, and the podcast probably will be soon. The, pro- the podcast probably. will be joining us soon, I'm sure, on Blue Sky. <laughs> Be, yeah, it's there not there than somewhere else. We'll keep like you the, posted. Well, like the reason in this ever-changing we, atmosphere. Yeah, I keep trying every new platform to see which one sticks. Whichever one does stick, there will be a podcast <laughs> thing there. We should just join all the fake ones that exist only in TV shows. <laughs> Facer. Yeah. <laughs> Additionally, Marshall, are are you going to be somewhere people can find you soon? I am going to be somewhere people can find me at the beginning of August. Um, I believe it's August 4th through 6th. I will be at ArmadilloCon in Austin. This is probably no surprise since I'm there all the time because it's my home con. But <laughs> but still, I will be there and be seen and be seeable. And you can... and I, there, It's going to be a great con. We have a, a lot of cool people coming in. Our guests of honors this year include um, Cory Doctorow and... Uh, Gabino Iglesias and and Tanya Ransom is going to be our Toastmaster. If you're familiar with Tanya and her work, she has a fiction podcast uh, called Nightlight um, or Night Flight. It's it's a horror podcast and it's really cool and I strongly suggest y'all check it out. Um, so it's going to be really cool. Yes, go there and you too can perceive Marshall. <laughs> he will be he can be perceived there. Yes, I've yet to master invisibility. <laughs> keep working on it i mean i can i can do it but it makes me sweat so much it's virtually useless so <laughs> <laughs> folks if you could see real in his face right now <laughs> i always love the idea of superpowers that like the side effects just renders them like nearly useless. <laughs> relatively pointless yeah like, I mean, I don't know. If if invisibility essentially made you a moisture cloud floating through the air, 
You could get away with that in the American South. Like, I'm looking outside right now, and it's like, yeah, it's basically soup air anyway, so. But be very like, limited but with, with limited there, range with, of your would there be like a scent component that people would smell you coming again in the in the Once south again, not sure you notice <laughs> <laughs> but I, i'm reminded of in uh is it mystery men where the character of invisible boy he can turn invisible but only if no one's looking at him <laughs> i think i also have this power <laughs> So we have talked religion in a few forms on the podcast, but we thought we would elevate it to your kind of like 300 level a little bit and dig into like, how does religion and belief and faith systems and all that stuff inform the worldviews of your characters? How does it, you know, bleed out into culture? How does it inform how people engage with the world that they live in and just poke around that a little bit? So in some ways... The first question is, like, what is religion anyway? Uh, for me, I think there is a big difference between the concept of religion and the concept of faith, because faith is about the things you believe in, whereas re religion is more about, like, sort of the doctrine and the dogma of, like, what... It's almost the, the politics of the faith rather than necessarily the faith in and of itself. And therefore, you have this whole thing of, like... This is how you practice right, and which can be a radically different thing than just what you believe in. And I think that that's something that's particularly true as an understanding and a division, kind of like in our current view, that the idea of religion is organized religion, that there is a an organized like institution, typically, with a set of practices and beliefs that have been defined. And I think it's interesting because that's not always like that's not always the case. And I think that you're right that we might use the word faith to mean when it's outside of an institutional like doctrine right. or or like here's the box, but then there are things that exist kind of outside the box. Historically, I don't know if that's always true that it's that you have institutional organized religion and then like something else. I don't I don't know. That's a, it's it's a weird one. See I wonder if, like, the phrase organized religion is a redundant phrase that, like... I like disorganized religion. If it's a religion, <laughs> then there is organization. If it is just a belief, then it's faith. And, like, those aren't, like, it's a Venn diagram with overlap, but not necessarily yeah. one and the same. Or if, or if at some point the term organized religion had to exist because there was disorganized religion. And so you need to have that separation. I mean, I could make commentary on, you know, like, middle-aged schisms of Christianity and things like that. Like, that's some disorganized religion right there. <laughs> when you've got three popes excommunicating each other, that is some disorganized religion. <laughs> but, like, I think even just the way we think about a, a system of faith, whether or not it is, in fact, that controlled and codified, is a very modern and i suspect also very western way of thinking about it because mm. like we think today like religions have a name right christianity judaism islam buddhism hinduism they're sort of the big five quote unquote that you get taught in schools it has an ism it has a name of some kind but that feels fairly modern to me like that feels that feels of the more modern world and i'm not sure exactly when it starts and maybe it starts when you start getting lots of schisms and like the need to define your system of beliefs as opposed to a different system of beliefs um 
I mean, the word Catholic, the Catholic Church, with a little c, Catholic means universal. Like, so when you hear things from places that we now think of as Protestant, like Elizabethan England, referring to the the queen being head of the Catholic Church, and you're like, wait a minute, no, she wasn't. She was she was very definitely not. There was a whole thing about that. People got beheaded about it. <laughs> we had a conversation <laughs> and a beheading. We had, <laughs> we had a couple beheadings about it. It's because they're using the little c, meaning universal, meaning like their universal faith. Or if I go back and I think about, you know, the the European pagans of early centuries, there's no word for like the Roman religion or the Greek religion or the Celtic religion. There, there's not a, a word for that in the same way we have words for what we think of as modern constructions of faith. It very much was just, you have your faith, you have your gods, you have your practices and your rituals, and some of them are really, really, really codified. So there is structure to them. But it's not, it's not like a discrete unit. Like, I sort of feel like modern religions are their own, like, discrete units. And if you play civilization, they're treated that way. Like, they're, they're their own game mechanic. <laughs> so, <laughs> religion as game mechanic of your world. <laughs> is it its own sort of apparatus? Or is it something fully enough blended in that there doesn't need to be a separate word for it? It's just part of what people do all the time. Yeah, it is kind of interesting because in some ways the way we think of religion as discrete units are in order to describe things in comparison to one another. And if you exist in a world in which you don't see comparison to other views in a different enough way to say, like, I believe this and you believe that, and these are two different things and therefore must have two different labels, like, why would you bother labeling it? Like, even though people in the ancient Mediterranean world, like, had different practices and different beliefs from one another, from their neighbors, like, I'm a woman of a certain age, I pay more attention to this, you know, to these gods, this is what I worry about, you don't, you do something else. If they saw it as all part of the same, like, umbrella enough that there was no need to define, like, to put a word to what it was that they were doing beyond, say, like, I am a devotee of Mars, or I am a you know, I, I practice this, like, to, to explain to people, like, what, what, you know, you get into, but that that overall umbrella isn't something you feel you need to define, because everyone's under the umbrella, to some degree, except for weirdos. Yeah, well, I think it's all, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's when the system of faith is not itself exclusionary, which perhaps also has to do with whether or not you have, like, a book of your faith, and, and it's telling you what to do. But, you know, when, when it's, polytheism and lots of different temple systems and lots of different cults like it's not exclusionary you you can believe in lots of them at the same time and you can care more about some than others and you can think that cult of isis over there is really weird they do weird stuff they dance around i don't know they got got their own thing going on the priests of yeah those those holy people man they're they're castration that's a choice they're loud they're loud (laughs) annoying and i want to take their tambourines away Sorry, that's just yeah. what it is. Yeah. But, <laughs> but you don't like You still accept them as under the under the big umbrella that that, yeah, that the shared like, universe of choice, all the gods exists. But it's not that you're wrong. You might be annoying, right. but you're not or like, even it's not a wrong. Or even thing. if you are wrong, it's it's not so wrong that I care enough to do anything about it. Like, you know, you're fine. It's your thing. And do like, do your thing. You're not wrong I, in that your god doesn't exist. You're wrong that your god sucks. And, <laughs> yeah. And yeah. so be you. <laughs> <laughs> Which is always my personal viewpoint on gods in general is that, like, yeah, gods are assholes. Like, 
my pagan ass is, is very comfortable with that. I don't know enough about the history of early Judaism to know exactly when that starts getting defined so strictly as exclusionary, because I, I do remember having heard that very early on, Judaism was a henotheistic belief, which does not mean only one God. It means my God is above all your gods. Um, it acknowledges the possible existence of other deities and just simply says mine is best. And we have this covenant with with him. And that makes us better like that. That's sort of the, the idea of the yeah, covenant. And, and actually, actually, but that, at some point that uh, changes and becomes I am the Lord thy God, and you shall have no other gods before no me. No other gods before me. Before me. Well, and I, they can come after, and but there, and there's, like, I'm, I'm not certain when that changed there's, there's into being. There is plenty of stuff in the Old Testament where you have other cultures who worship other gods, and it's never questioned that those are, in fact, legitimate worships of a deity, that there is, in fact, something supernatural happening there. They never say it's fake. They never say that's not a real, you know... That, that ball no, isn't it's just real. That, like, like, no, it's, it's real and it's wrong and you shouldn't do it. So don't. And I think it's that word covenant might be of particular interest here, because if you believe in a, a covenantal relationship with a deity, that probably changes things, right? So if you believe that there is um, some kind of special promise or oath or set aside-ness to the, the religion that you are practicing, that's going to change how you engage both with it and with the people around you believing different things. Suddenly right and wrong enters the equation more in terms of what you can do if there is a exclusive relationship. I guess a good thing, it's, it's you, monotheistic or not, you're monogamous at that point. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's a monogamous relationship. And you, you know, which I mean, there's plenty in in the Old and New Testament that describes the people of God as the the bride and God as the groom. I mean, that's that's not, you know, yeah. totally, yeah. that's not a completely ridiculous analogy. Yeah, it, I think it changes the game a little bit in terms of how you think about your relationship to faith, whether or not you begin to become more exclusionary, more strict, not just exclusionary of other people, mm-hmm. but exclusionary of what you yourself can do and engage with. Yeah, the rules upon you become become different and and more tied specifically to a religious rule that someone has written down and not just a cultural norm. Yeah. And I think when when we of the European viewpoint attempt to view other faiths in this kind of structure is a place where we often err. You know, in what we call Buddhism, Hinduism, Shintoism. From the religion course I took in college, I I don't think they are like those are not codified faiths in the same way that we think of as like Christianity as a codified faith, but our brains want to make them be right <laughs> because because of the right. way our brains are trained to think about religion and we have we and have I think created, we miss a lot of the we nuance have created, like, religion in those faiths and we want to put things yes in exactly the bin you must in go the way that we understand about the bin maybe of a very different size shape or fluidity so yeah. It may not be a bin. I, it, I remember it might, it might be a religion jello that changes and moves. You know, it's a nebula cloud yes. of religion that yeah. with amorphous <laughs> yes. borders. I like that better than jello. I mean, that does remind me. I remember because we we tend to use the phrase like Judeo Christian or you know or Abrahamic to like describe how Judaism and Christianity and Islam sort of have similar origin points and also that similar kind of structural element that is 
you know, because we didn't want to just say like Western faiths or something, because that sounds gross too. Yeah. But the sense that those three religions have a very different kind of structure than so many of the others. Well, they have a, they have a shared common ancestry. It's literal yeah. Abrahamic. Yeah. We yeah. call it Abrahamic faiths for a religion. Yeah. But I, I think people bulk, and I could have this wrong, bulk less at the concept of the Abrahamic faiths rather than Judeo-Christian. Like, Judeo-Christian implies like, oh, we're the same, but not like everybody else. And, yeah, and I, from my understanding... And I think that you are right, though, that it's helpful to think of them as having some similarities in terms of how they define the borders of their own faith. And that, you know, they're, it's right. their faiths of the book. They are faiths of having some structure of institution, um, no matter, you know, which... And there are plenty of variations within all three, but that they... they are saying institutional sounds wrong, but I'm trying to pick like a neutral word, <laughs> but that there is, there is, there is hierarchy in terms of leadership in all of these. There is institution in terms of spaces that are created and also in terms of norms and rules that may be codified to various degrees that people kind of understand um, and understand also the differences between what they in their particular corner of, of that box believe compared to what people adjacent to them believe. It's interesting that you could probably, you know, a reformed Jew could probably tell you more about the differences between like, you know, reformed Judaism and Orthodox Judaism, or a Catholic can tell you the differences between, you know, Catholicism and, you know, whatever Protestant denomination. And it's interesting that that's all still within the concept of, we have borders, there are borders of what we believe, and we, we and borders within and borders, 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 within borders, borders all, within borders. You know, whereas if you think of something that's much broader and is, is more of, again, the nebula cloud of belief, and I exist in this particular part of the sparkle and you exist over there, but there's not necessarily a firm yes, no, here, there, this, that, that, that exists there is, I think, something we have a hard time. Well, and you can move in a nebula cloud yeah. too, like... Sometimes I'm more over here, and sometimes I'm more over here, and as I understand it, that's frowned upon in, in the hard, the harder line face. I mean, you know, words, words like excommunication get thrown around, anathema, <laughs> blasphemy, profane. I, I don't know. I'm reminded of. I forget who, I want to say it was Emo Phillips, but it was a comedian from the 80s who had this bit of like meeting somebody else and being like, oh, are you, you know, are you Christian or Jewish? And he's like, oh, I'm Christian. Oh, me too. Are you Catholic or, or, or Protestant? Oh, I'm Protestant. Oh, me too. Are you Methodist or Baptist? I'm Baptist. Oh, me too. Northern Baptist or Southern Baptist? Oh, Northern Baptist. Oh, me too. Because it's like, and so are, are you the Council of 1897 or the Council of 1905? Council of 1905. Heretic! <laughs> now we must fight. <laughs> now. Make them fight. <laughs> but like, got so granular and then that one difference was like, nope. Nope, we're we we must we must do battle now. I mean, this I think it's one of, again one of those those cases of like the real world is too weird and too messy to possibly do within the the sense of your world building. Like if you made your religions like this granular and this specific, or like have or this messy, or all at the same time, it would be just too too much for your world to be able to like you know. At least to put it all in the book, unless it was very specifically a about book that. about <laughs> about that. Like, I, I would love somebody must have been crazy enough to try and write a fantasy book that is basically their world's 
version of the Council of Nicaea. That's the book of like of the 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 process of organization of the religion. I think a bridge between like how are you going to define religion, how do you understand it, is then how how much of a break is there between what you consider this is part of my religion or faith and this is part of my everyday life? Because I think for most modern people, the break is pretty distinct. I mean, I'm, I'm oversimplifying, obviously, and people exist on a wide spectrum. But I think we often default to thinking of you have culture and you have religion. You have kind of day-to-day activities and then you have religious activities. But for a lot of people at a right. lot of times in a lot of parts of the world, those two things blend and mesh a lot more. It's something that separating it out is a far more modern invention. And that is perhaps due, especially in America, and and this is once again, trying to generalize across the entire world would be impossible. But especially in modern America, there being so many different faiths, and there being even so many different versions of Protestant that you can be, (laughs) I think contributes to that sort of separation of, of religion and culture. And the idea that in a more in our more modern society, the secularization of culture and the idea that, you know, church is what you do on Sunday, but probably for many people the rest of the week, you don't think about it that much. And that's not everybody. Um, there are certainly segments of society that would like to take us full Christo fascism and make us all think about it all the time. And no, thank you. Uh, hard pass. It's a no from me. But broadly speaking. American culture is very Christian influenced, but it is not just one kind of Christian influenced. Um, There's a lot of things we can blame the Puritans, our Puritan forebears for, but there's a lot of things that are influenced by modern baptism. And there's a lot of things influenced by gospel culture from, you know, the American South and, and the way that the black population developed their own sort of brand of Christianity. There's so many different kinds of it in, in this geographic space that i don't know maybe in some ways secularism was the only like secular shift in the broader culture was the only way to not be constantly murdering right, each and, other and, and to preserve those <laughs> yeah. distinctions right so if you want to preserve distinctions then either you're living in little pocket enclaves all the time which i guess if you're like amish or shaker those shakers didn't work out so well um poor shakers or orthodox judaism yeah so that there's if you let's you can live in a pocket like you have to find commonality with with other people if you're going to have the kind of extreme distinction. I know too that like you know like the Pew Research Forum and things like that will will have surveys of of like how often people practice particular like religious activities in their day and like you know do you pray every day how often do you go to church do you read some form of of religious text every day and it's interesting because i mean most people don't right most people don't formally pray every day or formally read something or formally do something um and it's interesting to think about like i think we tend to think of people who do that as fringe elements in some ways, this is different. That's not, you know, something that most people incorporate into their ordinary life. But I think it's interesting to think of from a fantasy perspective that in many, many parts of the world at many times, daily religious practice was just part of your daily routine. It's absolutely baked in, you know, in the same way that eating right. was. Yeah. And, and for, and for, and like you have and, your meals and you have your worship times and those are just parts. And of I don't day. want to discount the fact that for, there are people today, even in the Western world for whom that is true, you know, but I think that it's, it's considered perhaps unusual. Whereas Catholic, you're saying, if you look at say, the ancient Roman world, it's 
it's tied into your daily routine, how you view your day, how you go through your day, how you view probably that's an extension of that, then the world around you gets pulled in and pulled in a lot tighter than I think we see it. Yeah, I mean, everything. I, I mean, I can talk about Roman religion for We won't stop long, you. But we, I, you should. But I mean, the entire calendar revolves around religious festivals. Um, that's why lots of them make appearances in the Oven cycle. Like that, that's a good marker of time and of communal experience. But your day-to-day life as well, like your home had a lararium, which is essentially a small altar in it. And you did something at that pretty much every day. Um, you, you've made sure to remember your household gods, because if you didn't, your roof might fall down. You know, like there's just so much of it. Temples were so public too. The The Roman Forum was a marketplace, but it was also a place of worship. It was also the place of politics. All of those things were happening in the very, very same place. Publicly, openly, unavoidably. You, you could not avoid religion in that world. And I think that's very different from today, where you can go through. It depends on where you are. But you can go through your life without encountering much in the way of, of faith if, if you choose to. And you might drive down the road and see a church, but you're not seeing the act of worship happen. Whereas in, in some cultures that happens, you know, out on the front steps so that everyone can see it and bear witness to what's happening. Um, you know, we no longer have a culture where before you can decide to make a choice, you have to sacrifice an animal to the gods and see what they think about it and make sure that all the organs look right and that there's not, you know, a missing liver because, oh, that'd be a big problem. It's very, it's very, very different. And I, I think it's... It's hard for us to wrap our minds around things like that, even in the context of modern faith, even people who do have their own modern faith, because once again, of that separation between the dominant culture and personal faith, there was no barrier between that in in the ancient world, really. It was all part of the same, the same universe. Um, And that affects your character's worldview. That affects a character's decision-making. it can affect the pacing of things. Like, I can't do this until after this particular holiday. Like, I can't take this action. I can't go to war until after the festival of whatever to the war god, because he'll be angry if I go to war before that. I think there's lots of interesting ways that fantasy could revive and bring back that kind of worldview in ways that can be good for character and plot that I think are sometimes underutilized in, in modern fantasy. I think so. And it seems to me that often when we do pull religion into fantasy, it becomes like there's some kind of like traps we tend to like fall into or roads we tend to take that 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 often are that very box shaped fantasy rather or box shaped religion, rather than, you know, a sort of lived in baked in kind Mm -hmm. of faith. And you, you'll have sort of like the evil overlord who's controlling everyone with religion, or you'll have the religious cult weirdos who are kind of almost there to like add flavor to your world like see we have different faiths look at these we have two religions normal and cult <laughs> exactly <laughs> yeah, i mean yeah in, you see oh and, and, and new flame and hot cults you know <laughs> but like you know I, what i see less is people engaging with belief systems that they actually believe and that changes their worldview because it's real for them. And I think that that's the part that often is missing. And perhaps it's partially, maybe we're a little cynical in our modern world. And and it's hard to be like, no, you really, really believe that. They really think that this is, is true. And so 
how would that change how you think? How would that change how you behave? Like you were saying, Cass, how would that change your time frames? how you make decisions, how you view people around you, how you view the passage of time, how you view the natural world? I mean, all these things are going to be affected by what you like truly and sincerely believe about that which isn't seen. Well, say also in a fantasy world, religion means a completely different thing. If your god is somebody you can have a beer at or with or yell at, you know, like that's you don't yell at your god. I yeah. yell at my gods all the time. They don't. I mean, they're not here though. I get. I see. I know. But like, you, you can like go. The, the question you can is, go do to the they, temple do downtown and say back, like, the <laughs> do they yell back? Yeah. And say like, look, I need to. I need to have some words with you about what you're all doing. Well, yeah. There's like a there's there, and that's a that's a tiered thing. Like. There are fantasy books in which the gods are real, but they don't appear. But everyone just in the world takes them as real. And perhaps they even have a real effect, but we don't see them. We don't meet them. And then there are the fantasy books where you can literally meet God. <laughs> and that does change. The, that's going to change your worldview. Yeah, it's interesting. Are, 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 are your deities on stage or off stage? And then from the audience perspective, are they perceived as real or or question right. mark, right? And I think, and I think that all those can affect how you write it, and also how does that affect how religion operates and what what morality is like? Like, is there a morality based on like how the gods behave, or is there like <laughs> this sort of like good for me, not for thee attitude of like you know, like no, I'm a god, I can fuck around as much as I want because I am not a you. god. But not you. Not, not no, you. I have rules for you. <laughs> it's important you stay monogamous and sober, but pass me a beer and I'm going to fuck yeah. your wife. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's a question, too, of like, you know, we assume that the concept of ethics and morality would extend from the gods if they exist and are on stage, but not necessarily, you know? No, and, doesn't have you know, to. That's, that's, a, that's a choice. You can you can choose to say, in fact, we act in a manner contrary to this god because, frankly, we've tried doing what he does and it doesn't turn out well for society. So, no. Everyone's just hung over all the time. <laughs> I'm just so tired. <laughs> I do not have that immortal stamina. Gods, <laughs> if only. And I do wonder how much of this tendency in fantasy to avoid... The, the personal faith, the real deep beliefs is a function of our more secularized culture and not wanting to put off a reader who doesn't share those faiths or those beliefs. I don't know, which I tend to not worry about because I tend to write in historical context. And it's like, this is yeah. what, this is how people live. This is how they existed. Deal with it or don't, whatever. I don't care. Um, but even, but like you were saying, Rowena, the cynicism of belief, I think shapes a lot of how writers shape characters sometimes and also perhaps a desire to avoid plot mechanisms of copping out via deus ex machina you know like if your gods are off stage and suddenly come on does it end up feeling cheap does it end up feeling like you let your god solve your character's problems yeah. and people don't you know you don't that's out of vogue that's that's a that's a also a modern thing because if you look at like Shakespeare and his contemporaries, fun. gods showed up to fix the problem in the fifth act all the time. Like, we were, didn't we were seem to bother anybody. <laughs> exactly. It's like, oh, thank God, Jupiter came down on a chariot to fix things. Excellent. We Good. can move on now. We can move on and finish the play. And, and that's also, that's a modern sensibility, right? That's a modern taste. Doesn't want that kind of an ending, I don't think. We, we now find that a cop-out 
unless you can do it in a really clever yeah. way. It has to almost be a, a turn. You have to you have to take the trope and turn it. It's interesting too that you know. If Jupiter shows up in a chariot, he is not going to fix things. He's just going to make it worse. Jupiter wasn't as bad a guy as Zeus. I'm just true. <laughs> Culturally speaking, but still. <laughs> but still. <laughs> that's Cymbeline, though. He shows up at the end of Cymbeline, and like that's. Or John Lilly's Galatea, where like these. Galatea is such a queer play. I love it so much. Where these two girls, each disguised as boys, have fallen in love with each other. And. <laughs> You know, he's thinking the other ones, and and they're they're very upset about it. And when they find out at the end that they're both girls, Venus takes them off stage and is like, "Don't worry, I'll fix it." And it's implied she means fix it by turning one of them into a boy, which could be a trans narrative. Who knows? But it's not stated outright that that's what she's going to do. So anyway, like gods can show up and make things different. At least maybe maybe better, maybe worse. That that was a common trope in an earlier age, but not one that I think you can as easily get away with now. It's interesting too that like I mean. You can have characters who are engaging with a personal face and never have any confirmation that their gods are listening to them or doing anything about it. And I think that that's something that probably happens less, like you were saying, Cass, because because we don't want to turn off a reader or because, you know, it, it feels weird, maybe. Um, but I think when it's done well, it it makes the characters seem so much deeper and richer um and fit into their worlds like i'm thinking of um shannon chakraborty with um the adventures of amina al-sarafi she the character is muslim and she is openly muslim and she will mention praying and it's just very clear that this is a part of this character's not only her world but her personal viewpoint um you know, and, and so when she's like committing piracy and stuff she's you know, occasionally questions like you know what will Allah think of me? But it's it, there's an interesting like tension there that I think if if Shannon hadn't been as kind of bold in, in going ahead and just doing that, it, it would have been missing from the narrative. And I think it actually adds a lot to the narrative to bring in not only, yes, this is a world in which these religions exist and people practice these religions in these ways and et cetera, but it actually affects how the character views herself and how she exists within the world. Yeah, one of my favorite examples of that will always be um, the Kushiel's Legacy series by Jacqueline Carey, because the faith in that is so well woven into society. And the viewpoint character in the first series, especially Phaedra, has sort of a confused tangle of associations with it's it's their angels, they're not deities, but they're essentially deities for the way they function in the society. She has sort of a tangled relationship with a couple different of them, but it is very personal and and you see this in many many people that they that faith is part of life and as the series expands you see that being true in other cultures as well and you get a really wide tapestry of ways that people believe things and ways that those beliefs cause them to act and in that series you get a lot of confirmation um not usually directly not not by appearance of a deity or an angel or a force like that but by the undeniable effect on the world where something has happened that is totally beyond a human having done it and it is not normal it is not something we could qualify as you know just nature it is supernatural and we attribute the religious cause to it and and it's i don't know it's, it's it really it it sparkles for me in that series and it feels woven into the culture and to into individual character belief more so than in lots of things I've read. 
Although the other thing I was thinking of was also um, Zoraida Cordova's uh, Labyrinth Lost, the first of the Brooklyn Brewers series. And the whole series, sort of, but that, that w- it's sticking out in my head most in Labyrinth Lost, where, like, the importance of ritual, the importance of a religious ritual having a literal, real-world effect on a person and what they can do is also really, really an, an interesting way. And that is set in a modern world. That is set in a, you know, modern Brooklyn. But it has a different viewpoint than I think lots of, of contemporary fantasy. I'm going to use a, a more science fictional example, but I think, since I love to use Babylon 5 as an example, I'm going to do it again because he, he does, it, they, they do a great job of showing that these different alien cultures all have, you know, their own religions and it's not just like we have this religion and this alien has like the different there are different sects and beliefs within each alien culture of what their what their faith is and then you add on to up you have this one alien race who's far more advanced than everybody else who basically use their mind control powers to make themselves appear like the angels of each culture to so when you see them you're like oh that's an angel or that's this prophet or what have you so then the idea of like, oh, our religion has been shaped by these other aliens. And ooh, how do we feel about that? We're not very Awkward. comfortable. <laughs> Awkward. Awkward. <laughs> when you literally meet your deity and it's like, oh, wait, you're wait, you're not a deity. You're a you're an alien. I don't know how I feel about that. I mean, Star Trek does something similar. And that's an evolution over time because Gene Roddenberry's perspective in the beginning was that, you know, humanity and by presumption all other spacefaring races sort of evolved past religion which right is a very a very 20th century science way of looking at things and i understand where it comes from especially with the amount of problems that religion causes and i can understand seeing like that in order to have a conflict-free society you would have to move beyond religion but i think there's a lot of problematic elements to that that worldview as well, that that religion cannot exist in yes. harmony with, Just with science the, and other things. That's a problem. That's a problem. The, the, idea, the idea that the I, problems with religion were, were with religion, not with humans. Not with the people. Because <laughs> yeah. humans are going to human. <laughs> humans are going to human no matter what, and, and presumably other, other you know, alien races as well. And so by the time you get to Deep Space Nine, yeah. TOS had an episode where they literally meet Apollo in that... Yeah. The, in that the Greek gods were really just like these aliens with special you yeah. know, immortal abilities or whatever. And, you know, by 23rd century, and they had left. They spent some time on Earth because it was fun and they got to fuck around a lot. And then they left. Which, and To be and fair. Left, <laughs> and then they got bored because nobody's worshipped them. And then only Apollo was left because the rest just sort of like faded away or something. But like one thing that I've just been thinking about is how much... Like, at the beginning, we had, like, so many different, like, omnipotent energy beings in TOS. And we had Q and several others in Next Generation. Then we had the Prophets in Deep Space Nine. But since then, you could tell the writers have been like, let's let's steer out of this particular skid. (laughs) And, like... (laughs) That one. (laughs) But I do enjoy that in Deep Space Nine, they are wormhole aliens. And they are also the Prophets. And... They do take, you know, proprietary interest in Bajor. So, like, the Bajorans are not wrong to consider them as gods. Because yeah. as far as the Bajorans are concerned, they are. <laughs> like, they are unknowable beings 
who have taken an interest in you. Maybe not doing a great job of protecting you, but, you know, that's God's for you. And watching, you know, what so much of, of what's interesting in that series, I think, is watching, like, Cisco wrestle with this this weird dichotomy of, of faith and science. And one of my favorite episodes is an episode where Kira also has to reckon with, like, where her faith may not be ideal. Because <laughs> she's a very <laughs> religious character. Yes. But there's the there's the episode where the the other guy gets like spat out of the wormhole um, from like 200 years earlier, and everyone starts to think he was the prophet, not not Benjamin Sisko, and he wants the Bajorans to go back to the caste system that they had before their the the Cardassian occupation, and Kira starts to be like, wait, no, this I that's not the life I want. That's not how I want my <laughs> life to be, and it's an interest, it's an interesting moment of like watching a culture reckon with religious change and how you can you know for one reason or another let some elements of what your faith was fall away because something else is more important and acknowledge that shift but you start to see how deeply tied it was into the culture and some people are totally fine with going back to it and some people are very not fine with going back to it and the wormhole aliens i'm sure don't care at all (laughs) yeah and then some people were like oh this guy didn't go back. I have to murder him because he didn't follow his cast. Yes, because he, he didn't like it's it's and it's like, well, that's a problem. That's hmm. um, but it's a really it's a really interesting exploration of the intersection of religion and culture and where they are synthesized and where they start to diverge from each other. Yeah, it's just a, a fun episode exploring all of that. And watching Kira be bad at art because she's supposed to be an artist. That would, yes. <laughs> like, uh, no. <laughs> but I mean, there's also all the elements of that series where 80% of their problems could be solved by Ben Sisko just saying, hi, I'm the emissary, do this. And <laughs> they would be like, yes, sir. Yeah, like he could, he could <laughs> so easily be the evil overlord of Bajor. Like, yeah. if he was a bad person, <laughs> he could just... But, like, so many of his, like, little headaches about, like, dealing with dealing with Bajor and getting, you know, getting his mission done would be solved by him just playing that card. But he also is like, that's a really terrible card for me to play, and I don't want to do it. Yeah, it, it would be in contradiction to his ethical code of behaving <laughs> yeah. and... Well, it's interesting, too. Like, I feel like that example brings up the element too of we often treat religion, faith, belief as though some supernatural element has to be involved, right? Like that that the gods are outside of, or that you know if you don't have that element, then it's not religion, it's not faith, it's not really that. But like, there's no rule that says that you can't have a strong set of beliefs that are based on just things that exist in the world right i mean very stupid simplified example but if you believe that tree is special it just is because it is it's special it affects how you do your landscaping right and in a similar way if you believe that this person is in charge for a reason it affects how you believe leadership should work if you believe that certain values or ethics are elevated above others it affects how you go about your life and how you make decisions and what you think is right and wrong. And in some ways, like, 
I think it's interesting that we see ourselves like, well, we have people who are religious, have faith, have belief, and people who don't. But at the end of the day, like most people are running around with some set of, I believe things to be true. And I order my life in such a way because I believe these things are true. So the origin of those beliefs in some ways when we're thinking about building character may not matter as much as how they affect what the character does, sees, thinks, believes about the world around them and their place in it. I don't know if that made sense or if that was just a ramble. No, no, it does. <laughs> well, I mean, and it especially does because like in in gearing up for this episode, I was thinking more of like what is to, to go to the world of the magical newt gate, like what is the faith in Griasta. And it's a thing I've been, you know, mulling on for a while that I can't quite put my finger on what I want it to be. Like I don't I don't want it to be a theistic style religion. Like I don't think that they have a specific god or anything like that. But I, I, I think, think Griasta would definitely be on the disorganized religion <laughs> side of Oh no it is definitely the disorganized <laughs> religion. But I like the idea that it's like it's more of a code than anything else and more of like they have sacred values that are just because yeah more of just like a set of values that you just do which is sort of tied to this idea of doing right by yourself and doing right by the people around you thus for all their sense of like you know hedonism and you know enjoying life there is also a sense of like that you do service to society, to, to the community, to the people around you, because that is how we all help each other. And I think that is such a big, like, philosophical centerpiece to, to them, that we all help each other. I, I like the idea that there is, I want to say almost monastic orders, but they aren't necessarily, like, ascetic in how they behave like you know they're just more organized than everyone else because you need to have someone organized apparently (laughs) (laughs) not necessarily people who like you know deny themselves things but who operate on the premise of my joy comes from being of service and like and thus a lot of things get done because of the people who do this sort of thing and I, I love the idea that it's like it's an order of monks who take care of the snails because they want to be of service to the snails and that that's that's coming from that same place and that there's you know the children of Griasta are sort of like you know raised in a free range style <laughs> I like the idea that there are you know centers that are run by the same sort of organization same sort of people who like you know children just go there and hang out and you know somebody's going to read to them or or make sure that you know scrapes get patched up when they fall down and things like that just because again service to society is an important moral value even if even though you're still going to like enjoy yourself and have a good time as part of it but i like how much of that also speaks to how like open and public a society griasta is and and how much of life is viewable by others it's something you see in in the roman world as well which once again this is what i know too much about um (laughs) it's an it's an element of roman society that i actually didn't bring strongly into the oven cycle even though i kind of wanted to but it was it's complicated to explain because it is such a different set of moral 
moral beliefs and moral reckonings than, than our modern world. But the Romans had their virtues. You know, we think of virtue, I think, in a Christian world sort of way as being tied to a faith and tied to, you know, I follow the commandments or whatever. But for the Romans, almost none of their virtues, which were codified things and were almost currency, like they were such, they, it was so public. And so many of them had to do with how you appear to others and how you interact with others that it was almost like a currency. You could almost track like how much octoritas you had or how much dignitas you were known to have because life was so public, because so much of your life was lived in full view of other people. And so it's not quite as like, it's not as always as charitable, I guess, as as, as Griasta would be. It's not for as nice reasons. A lot of it has to do with like your dignitas is your sense of personal pride and how you conduct yourself. Your gravitas is having a sense of responsibility and a sense of importance and of, of situations and things like that. It to feel a little bit Pietas. like capital in some ways. That there's, there's like, it's yeah. exactly, but it's like, but it's like but codified, codified social, capital. social capital. It's like, and it could affect how you did things. It could affect your ability to get a bill passed that you wanted in the tribal assembly. If you're a man who has weak, weak dignitas or weak octoritas, people aren't going to follow you. And, and the, the sense they had of it as such a strong thing, um, I think is just really, really interesting. And it didn't derive from their gods. It didn't derive from the religion. Religion tied into a couple of like pietas. Um, but that was still more about your action. That was still more about like, you are you are a person who does your rituals exactly on time the way you're supposed to and you don't you know, you don't <laughs> cut the corners. So that idea of like, the way that a public world can influence faith, belief, morality in perhaps different ways than, than a world that is like where your private life is more closed off from your public life. Yeah, I, I definitely think that even the concept of private life is something that they're not like particularly, they don't even really comprehend so much that the idea that, like, you know, that there is. Yeah. <laughs> like, what, what do you mean, mind your own business? You don't, there's such a thing as your own business. But I, I think, like, there's also, like, a concept of, you know, that the important thing is to give and that a person who is who is known in the community to take a lot more than they give. Like, that person, like, that there's, like, a term. There will be a term for that person, but they're like, uh, you know, that's... Like, and, like, that's, does that affect their social standing? That, that yeah. totally affects their social standing. And, like, they, they, that's... For the grasses, like, that's the worst kind of person you can be. <laughs> that we all get to, like, live like this and, and all be joyful because nobody is just purely selfish about it. And that's... Because yeah. else it would just fall apart into chaos. So I think that is that is the core of their moral center. So that's that. How about our delightful Fjallanieris? I think their I think their religion would be a lot more structured. Oh, they got a book. They so have a book. They got. (laughs) They got. I think they might have. Like, (laughs) I I think it's structured, but I'm not sure it's like. I think there's probably lots of books. I think there's probably lots of debates about about the books. I think there's lots of competing books. I think there's lots of tracts. I think there's. I think they think about it and talk about it a lot, probably because it's. They are probably of the word very you know, it's, much. It's funny because um, I feel like the more 
important it is to a, to people that they get it right, the more debates there are over whether or not you're doing it right. Like we think of rigid societies as being like, well, they have to figure it out. It's like, no, when, when you're kind of like, you feel like there is, there is a way of doing it right. Like there's a lot of discussion and debate and disagreement over what doing it right means. And I, I want to see the fallen Uri's argue about it. It's amazing. I actually <laughs> love the idea that argument might even be the, the like, practice a of form of worship. worship. Yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I, like, I, I just had this idea of like instead of first communion you have your first debate you have holy, <laughs> holy debate to go to holy debate i like that but like the time that it's your time to sit in the chair like that's that's the equivalent of of your confirmation oh, i like the idea of going to holy debate but before you go to holy debate instead of going to confession you have to go to research <laughs> or to your rhetorician yeah. you your... have yeah, you, you you have you have to purify yourself with research. But it's it's interesting because I I do wonder how how deep it goes and like how much the nuances mean to them versus once again just the act of the argument being itself the important thing. Um, so like you might have a really heated religious debate with somebody, and then okay, the time's up. You want to go get a beer? Let's go get a beer. Yeah. <laughs> like, I think rituals might have a lot of importance, too. And I think that happens a lot in cultures where, especially, like, early on. And so, like, these may be things that have hung over because our, our world is is more technologically advanced and probably more stable when it comes to, like, can we feed our people now? But a culture that has, you know, extremes of climate, not a lot of margin of error for keeping people fed and keeping people warm and stuff like that. I think is going to lead off into a society that has firmer rules on how you behave. Whether or not that comes from like the gods said it is so and if you offend the gods then they will withhold the harvest or we all must behave this way because it's the only way we can all work together in order to get the harvest in. There are stricter rules when there's less of a margin of error. <laughs> and I think the Fjallanieri have probably dealt with that margin of error a lot um, in their history. And so that is probably why they are a, a more rigid and more codified society overall. And I'm, their faith plays a part in that. But I do wonder how much, like, there might even be a tiered system of, like, public faith and private faith. Because they are also people who have private lives. Because it's cold here. So we have, you know, <laughs> bedrooms and things. Um, we don't just leave our doors open all the time. That's how you get frostbite. Um <laughs> And so I wonder if there might be a sort of second tier of, like, your personal faith, personal gods in some way. I mean, maybe I'll give them the idea of household gods, because I like household, household gods. Household gods are fun. Um, oh, they could... And no one argues with you about no. that, because that's what happens inside your house. I'm not going to argue with you about what happens inside oh, your like, own house. That's your business. And like how, how some household, some household gods live in chimneys, and that's so perfect for your cold little folly <laughs> Yes. It's the little stove god. It's the little stove gods. I have to feed the little yes. stove gods. So like when I'm making my fire, I put like last night, the last of yesterday's bread in there the for stove the stove gods. gods. And that's just what you do. And that means you stay warm. warm. Yeah. I hate being cold. Why did I make a culture of cold people? I don't know. Anyway. <laughs> so you could find all kinds of ways to make them warm and take care of them. To make them warm. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, how about the Al so Not Lear? Because of where Al Not Lear is and it, it may be temperate, but it's still very affected by ocean, winds, currents, all that kind of thing. 
I was thinking that I wanted the Alnut Leary to have a sense of like the sacred nature, like sacred nature, sacred, like a divine, like nature is divine in some way. And not like in a traditional, like, and not like in an anim an animistic sense or um, even a particularly pagan sense, but just the idea that like there is sacredness in nature. It is beautiful. Also, we do not fuck with it too much. It is what it is. And instead of trying to control it with rituals and things that they have come to accept it, like this is just nature does to us what it is going to do to us and we just must respect it. Um, but to kind of balance sort of just a respect for the divinity of nature, creation, whatever. I really love, um, Hildegard von Bingen wrote this piece of music called Order Virtutum, which is basically a, like, de a debate for the soul of this human in which all the virtues speak for her and, like, try to say, like, this is, this is how you live out this virtue. It's, it's really cute and fun. Um, my favorite part of it is that it's sung by all women, but um, Satan has a role. Um, and because it was sung by nuns, they would invite a priest to come play the role of Satan. <laughs> but he doesn't sing. He just yells, which is, it's fun. Anyway, so I like the idea of having kind of a, a pantheon of personified virtues. And they don't really believe that they're like actually like gods or deities, but they have kind of personified the virtues to sort of like teach kids how to behave and to understand for themselves like what they want to um, aspire to, almost sort of like a platonic virtue kind of thing. Um, sort of a separation between the natural world, which is beautiful and divine and scary, and the society we create for ourselves. We're, we're an imitation of these, like, virtues that are idealized and, and, and we do our best to adhere to them or model them or behave like them in some way. So I imagine them having, like, in their houses, like, like small little altars to like their preferred virtue of choice and like picture books for children that, that talk about the virtues and, and what you're supposed to do. And some of them are very pedantic and silly. Um, and they're like those 1950s little golden books, but they like them. So <laughs> that's fun too, because those things are like tradable. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, I think that there are a lot of different ways to think about religion and worldview and what exactly does religion even mean? What does faith mean? What does belief mean? And like to really think about it, not just from the societal perspective, but like when you're creating character motivations or you think about how they move through their world, um, it's a good way to complicate things for yourselves. Yes. And complicating yes. things for ourselves is what we do. Hi, you. Thanks for listening to this episode of World Building for Masochists and letting us help you overcomplicate your writing life. If you want to know more about your hosts and the fantastical books we write, including Rowena's latest, The Fairy Bargains of Prospect Hill, Cass's Oven Cycle, or everything with my Meridane saga, links to all of that information is on our website at worldbuildingformasochists.podbeam.com. We'd also like to remind you that we are currently running a Kickstarter for our anthology, Traveling Light, set in the world that we've been building on air. We're extremely excited about this project and would love your help in making it a reality. 
Links and more information can be found at our website. We really hope you liked this episode. If you did, please do take a minute to tell a friend, shout about us on the internet, or leave a review on iTunes. If you've got questions or just want to tell us how cute we are, there's a number of ways to contact us. We're on Twitter as at WorldBuildCast, and our email is WorldBuildCast at gmail.com. We also have a Discord chat room linked in the About the Show page of our website if you want to come chat with us and other fans of the podcast. We'd love for you to share the worlds you're making and help us all build until it hurts. 